This episode of the If You Ask Betty podcast is brought to you by Camtasia from TechSmith. Camtasia is my number one absolute favorite for video and audio editing. I'll tell you more about how I use Camtasia for If You Ask Betty in just a little bit. You can learn more at Camtasia.com. Welcome to the If You Ask Betty podcast. This podcast is designed to discuss all kinds of development topics for all kinds of learning professionals. I'm your host, Betty Danowitz, and today we're talking with Julie Dirksen about AR and VR in learning for behavior change. Hi, Julie. Hi there. Hey, thanks for being on the podcast today. Could you help our listeners get to know you a little bit better? Can you give us a quick intro about you and maybe even how we met? Uh, yeah, so I have been an instructional designer uh, for, gosh, I think 25 years now, something like that, um, and uh, worked in e-learning and different kinds of things like that. Um, I wrote a book about 10 years ago called Design for How People Learn, um, which is frequently sort of what shows up associated with me. Um, and I, we were just sort of talking about the fact that I'm not sure we have actually met, although I know that we've been kind of approximate to each other in conferences and things like that. Yes, I think like literally within feet of each other, but the, the opportunity to conversate just didn't happen. So, um, but yeah, so thanks so much. I appreciate you being on the podcast, even though some stranger invited you. Um, so today we're going to chat about AR and VR in learning for behavior change. So um, the this sort of strange season, I've adopted that saying to try because I'm tired of saying mm -hmm. the word COVID and pandemic. So the strange season that we're in has definitely ignited a digital transformation in lots of organizations. And of course, part of that transformation is AR and VR, which is why I think this topic is so relevant right now. So last year, April of 2019, which actually feels like more like five years ago to me because Anyways, it's been mm -hmm. the longest year ever, but you co-wrote a Learning Guild research paper with Dustin, I'm going to butcher his name, DiTomaso? DiTomaso, yeah. Oh, I got it. Okay, good. Dustin DiTomaso and Cindy Plunkett, and it was titled Augmented in Virtual Reality for Behavior Change. And I, I know you know that, but I was telling the listeners just in case they didn't know that. But in all honesty, I've never been more interested in a research paper than this one. Um, partly because I'm completely obsessed with AR and VR in learning, but also because I've been trying to personally really understand behavior and why we do the things that we do for the better part of a decade. So seeing the two topics together was kind of like Christmas morning for me. <laughs> so can you tell us, tell us, how did you become interested in the whole idea of behavior change with AR and VR and what prompted you to want to like research it and produce something that would t sort of put these two topics together? Yeah. So I've been interested in the behavior change uh, areas for about 15 years. Um, I worked on a project in kind of the early 2000s that was AIDS and HIV prevention. Um, and, you know, one of the big issues with that was people know, people know that they should negotiate condom usage and that they should, you know, practice safe sex and all of these kinds of things. And yet, you know, while numbers are down, we were still seeing a lot of, you know, issues with people clearly disregarding that information in terms of, you know, continuing HIV infection rates and things like that. And so 
I was really, I remember being really interested at the time. I'm like, if, if it's not the message of, Hey, this can kill you. Um, and, you know, granted uh, the medicine interventions have, have certainly improved that situation, but it's still not a, you know, it's still not an ideal circumstance. Um, uh, what's going on with people? Like what's, what do they need to hear, understand, or how do we actually help people with these kinds of issues where they know what to do, but they're still not doing it. And that's kind of my litmus, uh, litmus test for behavior change problems. I mean, I think everything we do in learning and development is behavior change, but in particular, the challenging behavior change issues are any place where they know what to do, but they're still not doing it. The example I always use is how many people do you think are still smoking because nobody has happened to mention to them that smoking is a bad idea? Zero. The answer right. is zero. <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> And so that's, you know, and, and I, I'm not beating up on smokers. That's a super hard problem and people really struggle with it. And, you know, props to everybody who's, who's kind of fought that fight. But um, the, uh, but it is an interesting question. Like, why do we continually do stuff when we know that there are issues with it? And, you know, there's all these examples we can look at. You know, we all know we should be eating better, or exercising more, or, you know, we know that we shouldn't text while driving. We know that we should you know, not get sucked in by, um, uh, you know, clickbait on the internet or whatever the thing is. And yet, you know, these things still happen. And so I got very interested in that whole space around behavior change, which is anything where more knowledge wasn't really the answer to fix it. Um, and there's lots of things that are like that. Um, and one of the big kind of themes that emerged from that is that there seems to be something materially different from experiencing consequences than um, just sort of hearing about consequences or just mm -hmm. being told that there are consequences. And, and so that sense of immediacy around what are the consequences for something can really make a big difference. I was doing some work a while back on um, safety for construction workers. And uh, we noticed that there, when, during some of the interviews, there, there seemed to be an effect of if you knew somebody personally or um, if you had personally had an injury or if you knew somebody personally who had had an injury, so this sort of direct or first circle, that, that really made you, you know, very strongly, you know, cautious and even, uh, you know, sort of zealous about the safety measures that were necessary um, to prevent that thing. And so that's where some of the virtual reality piece came in is the question being, if you have an experience of consequences is that different than really, um, you know, just hearing about or being told consequences or things like that. And, um, and I got particularly interested in the work of Jeremy Balenson out of the Stanford Virtual Human Interaction Laboratory. Um, and so they do a lot of really interesting work in behavior change for looking at the question of where virtual reality and behavior change actually kind of creates a significant difference. And a particular study I was interested in was one that was done with Grace Ahn and Jeremy Balenson. I can't remember who the other investigator was, but um, the uh, what they looked at is they looked at environmental behaviors, right? We all know we should use less paper or, you know, turn off the lights or whatever these things, whatever the things are. Um, and in this case, they were specifically looking at paper usage. So how many paper towels do I use when I wash my hands or, you know, anything like that? And they had um, groups come in and they had both groups learned about sort of the overall consequences of paper usage, but one group went into kind of a cognitive condition where they read about trees being cut down. 
um, you know, the consequence of excess paper usage. And the other group went into a virtual reality condition where they actually kind of cut down virtual trees with virtual chainsaws. They had the room thing where the tree would hit and the actual floor would shake and stuff like Whoa. that. So it was much That's more, kind of fun. Yeah. It was much more physical uh-huh. experiencing of the consequences. And when they came out, they said, okay, will you reduce your paper usage in the future? And both of them sort of said, yeah, yeah, absolutely. But then they would accidentally, quote unquote, spill a glass of water as people were leaving the room. And then they would actually count how many paper towels the person would use to mop up the spill. And the people who had been in the more visceral condition where they were actually cutting down these virtual trees in virtual reality um, used almost 20% less paper than the Hmm. people who had been in the cognitive condition. While that's one study, and I don't want to overgeneralize from it too much, it is kind of an interesting thing because one group had had a real physical experience of consequences and the other group had just kind of been told about them. And and it seemed to have sort of a manifestation in the actual behavior. And intent is, we know that there's, we know an intent and action are not the same things, mm-hmm. you know? And so that's where any research where we're asking people, do you intend to quit smoking or do you intend to do something different? Don't doesn't necessarily match up with the actual behaviors that they do. And so I was really intrigued by this because this had kind of dovetailed with some other things that I had bumped into. But that was, I think that was the kind of kickoff point that got me really interested in looking at the behavior change and virtual reality and things like that. And I can totally see how that would get you all fired up because that's that's really interesting. 20% is, that's that's something to be paid attention to like that's significant and um you wonder like a month later or two months later if that number even increased as they had a chance to sort of process it and think about things mm-hmm. um so that's cool thanks for sharing that with us before we actually get into ar and vr for behavior change i am very curious what is the process for putting together a co-authored research paper like this i mean i can imagine there's got to be some dynamics in the play there yeah, well, there's a few things going on. Um, uh, I think that what this this particular research report actually came out of a presentation that Dustin and I did at, um, we did this session at Realities 360, and then uh, Jane Bozarth, who heads up research for the Guild, talked to me about it afterwards. She was looking for something, she originally suggested something bigger, and I'm like, oh, okay, I don't, I don't know how I'd distill out um, my thoughts on that, but I'm like, oh, but I, we have this sort of more targeted, focused thing. Um, and what we did is we actually mostly just did a um, a look at uh, what the research literature said about this. And Dustin works for a company called MadPow that does a lot of like digital behavior change technologies. And they had started to do some stuff in virtual reality, um, uh, but they do a lot of app-based things and a lot of other kinds of digital behavior change sorts of things. And um, I was interested and I brought Cindy in because she had presented at the e-learning um, conference that they do um, that Tracy Parrish helps organize every year uh, in Toronto. And what they were looking at was um, using it with medical students and other people involved in caring for people with dementia or Alzheimer's. Mm-hmm. And so they had looked at VR kinds of scenarios and having people uh, kind of go through it. And I knew that she was working on a research paper that was around that. And I think her dissertation was, was heavily involved with that topic. And so I thought she would be a great person to bring in because when we looked at these, the research on this in terms of what people were doing over and above, like there's some there's some clear business case stuff for augmented and virtual reality. 
in terms of like VR is great if you're if the thing you need people to practice is too dangerous to like put people into mm-hmm. real scenarios. So like firefighters, they can practice a lot of things safely, um, you know, and they still do things where they actually fire up buildings and you know so forth to teach people how to handle this. But there there are a lot of behaviors that they could practice in like a VR environment or something mm-hmm. like that for sure. Or things that are too expensive or difficult to replicate. Um, like uh, Walmart was using a VR. Thing for simulating getting people an idea of kind of how crazy um, Black Friday is after Thanksgiving mm-hmm. in the stores because you know they hire all these seasonal staff who weren't there last year and you know I guess the first time you experience it is kind of overwhelming and so if they can give you that experience in a less overwhelming thing like a virtual reality environment then they can be more prepared when the real thing actually happens. Yeah, I went there on to Walmart on Black Friday one time. <laughs> and I really wish it would have been a virtual reality experience because it could have just took the headset off and been done. But yes, yeah, yeah, no kidding. Yeah. I, 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 you know, the people for whom it works, that's great. It's not, it's not for me, but, um, the, the crazy shopping experience, mm-hmm. right. I'm like, when's the, when's the mall going to be like, the, I mean, I don't go shopping anywhere right now for the most part, but, right. um, but, you know, in normal, under normal circumstances, I'm like, when, it, when are there going to be the least number of people there? Uh-huh. Sure. So, sure. Yeah, I'm with you. So, yeah. So, so kind of five big themes in, emerged. One is that idea that I was talking about with the environmental study about experience consequences. And does that seem to make a difference in behavior? Um, another one that particularly came up in the augmented reality space was the idea of feedback mechanisms on behavior. A lot of the behaviors we struggle with have either delayed or absent feedback. You just don't know what the consequences are of some of the choices that you're making. And so can we use something like augmented reality to provide more of a feedback mechanism for people? Mm-hmm. Um, like for example, that, there was one where they set up a light display um, for people's sh- in people's showers. But it was something where you could kind of see here sort of normal length. Okay. You're going over, you're going over, you're going over. And you know, the question was. Oh, how much time you were spending yeah, in the shower? So how much water you were using oh. essentially. Um, and so that's, Interesting. I mean, you kind of have a sense, but most people aren't like timing their showers. So they don't really know. Right. Did I take a longer shower yesterday than I did today? It feels about the same. Um, but mm-hmm. you know, and is the water, the amount of water that I use kind of normal or is it excessive or things like that? Sure. Um, another one that was kind of interesting was kind of projecting out into the future. So another piece of research out of the Balenson lab was, um, the Stanford lab was, would people save more for retirement if they could walk around the world or see themselves as their retirement age selves? Mm. So they did the thing where they would age the pictures, the images of people, uh, or they'd have scenarios where they could, you know, walk around in a VR environment as an, as a retirement age person. And turns out, yeah, actually you will, you know, you will allocate a bit more of your savings to retirement if you, have spent some time empathizing with your future self. Another theme was empathy building. So, you know, not just your future self, but can you have empathy for people of a different race or a different gender or a different age? And will you be more inclined to have, you know, positive, positive viewpoint of the elderly if you if you spend time walking around the world as an elderly person, you know, that kind of thing. Um, and that's a big one that also shows up in the health literature because you get these young, you know, 20-something um, medical students, and if they're treating a geriatric population, they may or may not have any experience interacting with um, 
people in that population, they may or may not have Mm -hmm. any sense of what the physical limitations are. I mean, I know karma is paying me back now um, (laughs) in my middle age by giving me garbage eyesight. uh, And I have I'm one of those people that has like 37 pairs of reader glasses around the house because uh-huh. I can no longer yeah. read small print. And I know that I rolled my eyes a few times when people told me the font was too small in some e-learning program. And I'm like, well, you know, it's time for me to get the payback on that now. So <laughs> that's what you get for rolling eyes. Exactly. Your so that's the empathy building piece, right? And there's, um, mm-hmm. so there's suits you can wear that um, give you stiff joints and yellowed vision and, you know, slow down your gait and all these kinds of things. You can like physically walk around the world with some of the physical limitations. Um, There was one that simulated a tremor. So for Parkinson's, um, there's a whole series of eyeglasses that you can put on that will show you the world with different eye conditions if you're training optometrists or ophthalmologists or things like that. So, um, So being able to have a better understanding of what your patients are going through. There was a really fascinating one on the empathy building that was a really great use of second life. Kind of one of the only uses of second life that I was ever really super impressed with. But um, a psychology professor built a virtual clinic in second life. And if you walked around the clinic, um, you would have a lot of the same um, auditory or visual uh, stimuli that people with schizophrenia report. So Mm. you might walk past a poster and it's suddenly filled with swear words, or you might look in a mirror and your eyes might start to bleed. And so these were all things that actual people with schizophrenia would talk about, but you could get, you could kind of have the experience of walking around the world understanding. Because, you know, one of the things that I think is hard to empathize with on some of that stuff is how constant, like the voices are and, you know, how difficult it is. Like you just get, I think if, you know, I think a lot of people with schizophrenia just get tired of, you know, like they understand and they can fight it off, but at a certain point it just gets exhausting. And so it's exhausting. Yeah. yeah. It's a, um, a terrible, terrible disease. Right. And so getting, allowing the, the, you know, the students who are treating, potentially going to be treating these people to understand and empathize a little bit more with just the challenges of, of kind of walking mm-hmm. around the world with some of these conditions. Um, and then the last theme is emotional regulation, which shows up in a few different places, which could be like, like I said, the the Walmart example is an emotional regulation example. I want you to be able to be a bit calmer when you experience this in real life. So if I have you experience the simulated one, you can have, you know, you can face it with a little bit more calmness. And there's also some super interesting stuff that I think falls outside of our world of learning and development where um, they look at things like using VR as an immersive way to manage um, pain perception. Mm. Um, so they have a, there's a, I think it's called ice world. I should know this snow world, snow world. Uh, it's in the research report. Um, uh, but, uh, we're burn victims. It's really painful when they have to have their bandages changed. And so what they would do is they would give people this, um, immersive environment, uh, where they would, uh, be able to like throw snowball. It was kind of a game element. You threw snowballs at, different um, snow, snowmen and things like that, penguins or whatever. Um, but, it, you know, so it gave you something to distract you from the pain, but also had this cold, snowy kind of environment. And the control for that one was people who were just playing a Nintendo game of some kind. So, you know, there was a game element in both places, but the snow world, because it was immersive, because you had the goggles on, because it had, was this cold, snowy environment, all these kinds of things, um, people's reported pain perception was much lower 
in the snow mm-hmm. world or the ice snow world environment than in if they were just playing a regular video game or something in the same time because you know both are distracting but the one was more effective and so obviously physically it was the same experience but in terms of their perception of the pain it was less that's really interesting um so if you had to narrow down those themes to just two or three that were the most likely to validate AR and VR as a useful investment, right, for our learning programs to promote behavior change, which which two or three would you pick? Yeah, I mean, in some ways, I feel like the experience and consequence one is a really logical one for us to look at. And obviously, with augmented reality, something that helps performance like feedback mechanisms are potentially useful. But Honestly, the the bigger answer to that is it just depends because while I feel like AR and VR have kind of a big broader business case that's associated with them, with the behavior change stuff, it's really important to have a good understanding of your problem and matching up a solution to it. So the answer is it just really depends on what problem you're trying to solve and whether that's a problem that's worth this level of investment does have a tendency to depend on what are the consequences of this behavior not happening. Obviously, with our construction workers, they were trying to reduce the instance of fatal and serious accidents. And so basically this is like losing a limb or somebody dying, you know, so those are pretty significant consequences and they were willing to invest a fair bit to trying to solve that problem or mitigate it. But, you know, um, we have a little yeah. bit of shiny object syndrome with these things. And so sometimes, you know what, Hey, a good video will do, you know, do just as much for you or things like that. Uh-huh. So, and I think that's a good answer because, uh, you know, not that I was trying to ask you a trick question or anything, but just that I think you're absolutely right. Sometimes it depends on the problem that you're trying to solve. Uh, actually, all the time, it depends on the problem that you're trying to solve. Hey there, I got to pause the show for just a minute and talk a little more about Camtasia from TechSmith. I spend time editing audio and video pretty much every day for If You Ask Betty. My tool of choice for that is Camtasia every time. Camtasia makes it easy for you to edit video and audio. I use it to record screens. I use it to edit my podcast. I know you all know how much I love TechSmith products, but Camtasia is my go-to every single day. I've been editing video for many years, and Camtasia has been by far the easiest to learn and the one I've stuck with the longest. If you're looking for an awesome way to edit audio and video, check out TechSmith's Camtasia. And to help you out, they have extensive tutorials, which I'll talk about in my next episode. And just for being an If You Ask Betty listener, you can get 10% off Camtasia with maintenance at Camtasia.com by using the promo code AskBetty. Just enter AskBetty at the checkout and grab this great deal. Check it out at Camtasia.com today. Okay, back to the show. I'm super interested in these themes that came up. So the one that I think has probably perked my ears up the most is the one of empathy. And and you mentioned sort of that, that uh, example of being able to walk around and experience what somebody who uh, is fighting schizophrenia might experience. So, but what I want to do is kind of ask a couple other questions. Let me just roll that back a little bit. How, what did you discover when you were researching about when, in regards to this whole theme of empathy, like what, what, what sort of deep rooted insight did you find when it came to using AR and VR to help sort of spur people to be more empathetic? Well, you know, one of the things that came up, because Cindy wrote that section in the um, research report, because like I said, she's doing her PhD in that space. And um, 
actually don't know where she is. She might've finished it already. But, you know, one of the things I kind of asked her to add in a little bit about was what's the business case for empathy, which Mm -hmm. it feels to me like you shouldn't have to do, but you know, here we are. We have to teach that now. I mean, we've always had to teach it, but it's much more apparent now. Yeah. So, you know, more empathetic healthcare providers actually get better clinical results in a lot of studies. Um, and it's not just, I, you know, do you feel sorry for the patient, but do you actually understand something about the patient's circumstances and what they're going through? Because we, you know, one of the big costly issues in healthcare is things like adherence to the, you know, uh, whether it's medication adherence and they're actually taking the medication as prescribed, um, or it might be adherence to, you know, a physical therapy, um, you know, physical therapy uh, program or, you know, different things like that. And so, um, so it seems like empathy feels like that sort of soft skill, touchy-feely kind of thing, but it does actually correlate to uh, improved results in a lot of kinds of things. And, you know, one of the things we struggle with in, you know, whether it's customer service training or sales training or whatever it is, the more that you can actually understand, in a lot of cases, empathize with your audience, the more effective you are at your job. Um, and so it's not just like, Hey, it'd be really nice if we all have empathy for people, but it actually improves, like I said, health outcomes or quality of service or sales outcomes or any number of things can be improved by having a greater degree of empathy for the audience that you're dealing with. And obviously we're dealing with big picture issues in the world, right? Like, um, mm-hmm. so, uh, uh, one of the things that Jeremy Valentin was working on, and I don't know where they are in this, but it was actually a pretty big long-term study looking at empathy building around, uh, you know, different races. So if you can walk around the world as a different race, does that change how you view that race? And they had done some other stuff about homelessness, for example, Mm -hmm. you know, like we have all these attitudes about homeless people and how did they get there and what caused it and whose fault it is and all these kinds of things. But, you know, if you can have more of a direct personal experience and understand, you know, and have real empathy for people in that population, it really changes how you view it and what things you start to think about in terms of, you know, suggestions or solutions for some of the really big problems we're dealing with. Yeah. And I think it kind of goes back to what you were saying about if you, if you experience it. So now I'm going to go and uh, going to jump over to another theme because I see that they're connected. If you experience it, you experience consequences for it. You are much more likely to internalize that information And then that results in a behavior change. So, and that's the one thing that I thought was really interesting about this report is that as we kind of went through these different themes, while they're all separate in and of themselves, they are connected to each other because when you're, when you're, when the theme of empathy comes up, typically the the way that you can help build that is by experiencing consequences. And so those kind of go together, Mm -hmm. whereas they can also live separately and apart. So they're not mutually exclusive, but they sure are well connected. I don't know if I said that right, but we're going to go with that. So, <laughs> um, but so then, so let's just take one of those examples. So let's take that example of homelessness because I know it's it's a huge problem for the country. And by problem, I mean it's something that we want to solve. We want to help these folks out. Um, and so, if we were to experience consequences of homelessness, what what type of immersive experience? might that be? Like, just what do you think that would look like, feel like, and what kind of results could we expect from that? Oh, gosh. Um, I know that the, I know that they did the study and I don't actually know 
specifically what it is. Um, I can give you an, an example that I have a little bit more experience with, which is, have you ever seen the game Place? It's like placespent.org, mm. but it's the mm-hmm. game is called Spent. No. And it's it's a game, it's freely available online, um, but it was a, so it wasn't really virtual reality in that immersive sense, but it's a, it's a simulation game where you okay. are basically asked to figure out how do you get to the end of the month on a, um, basically a minimum wage salary. Oh right? yeah. I would not, I wouldn't get past day two. Yeah. And you have to make decisions, <laughs> right? And so you have to make decisions like your kid comes to you and wants to um, try out for, you know, a sports team. Um, but you know, it's going to be 50 bucks for the, you know, the sign up fee in the uniform or, you know, something like that. You know, can you do that as somebody who's living like this or um, the one that killed me? Cause I've got a, I've got a small dog, but it was, you know, your dog is diagnosed with something that's going to cost several hundred dollars to fix, or you can have your dog put down for 50 oh, bucks. What are oh, you going to do? That's terrible. I know. Right. Um, but like, those are the kinds of decisions and you can live closer to your job and spend less time commuting and have more time for your kids or you can live further away and spend less money. And you have to make all these choices mm. throughout the month to try to get to the end of the month and still have, you know, be above zero in, uh, in terms of the balance and how hard that is. And, you know, it's something that when you're not in that situation, you, it's really easy to make assumptions about or to, you know, think it's, you know, blame people for, you know, their own circumstances or any of those sorts of things. But mm-hmm. like people were working really hard and having real struggles with this kind of stuff. And so if you're forced to make some of those decisions, you, you can, it makes you, I think a little bit less blase about, about it for things. So it doesn't yeah. work a hundred percent. I can tell you from experience, I've had some people play it, and, you know, tell me why it's wrong or something, but it's still, um, well, don't talk to those people anymore. You don't need that kind of <laughs> negativity in your life. <laughs> well, and, and you're you're explaining it as a simulate, like it's a simulation. So just imagine if you could take that simulation and turn it into a virtual reality experience where not only do you see, you know, your child now crying because you've told them no on the screen, but you're hearing it like literally in your headphones and seeing mm-hmm. them right in front of you in 3D crying and like you then have to, you then feel things that you might have felt only like halfway by going through a mm-hmm. simulation but by being fully immersed in it you can feel things and definitely feel an experience sort of that um that experience the consequences mm-hmm. yeah well and you know when you tell people to do things you get a certain amount of reactance and we've seen this with you know the coronavirus stuff right like you tell people to um wear masks some people don't want to just because they don't like being told what to do. Right. Mm-hmm. You know, and that's Hold on. Term- yes. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, and so reactance is a thing, right. We, and we deal with this versus if you, um, you know, if you have the experience of a family member getting sick or, you know, things like that, um, that's a different, that's different. And then you, you know, and then you draw your own conclusions about how to keep people safe or, you know, things like that. So um, some of it goes to things like, do people feel, nagged by being told Mm. versus having an experience and drawing conclusions from it, Mm -hmm. which feels a little bit more like they're retaining control over, they're retaining a certain amount of autonomy or control. Now, granted, you can't a hundred percent control what their reaction is going to be, but, um, but that's an interesting area, right? Like instead of yelling at you because 
um, I think you should wear a mask. If you can have some experiences that lead you to believe that this is, a, you know, so if you could watch a re- walk around a virtual reality where COVID was visible. Yeah. And see, see the clouds of COVID that are coming out of the people not wearing masks and see that it's much, you know, it's much less um, spread out and prevalent from the people who are wearing masks. You know, that kind of thing, if you could have that experience, then you can draw your own conclusions from it. Um, and this is what I mean when I talk about most behavior change problems stem from things where that are delayed or absent feedback. You know, COVID is a perfect example of this where mm-hmm. you don't get sick. If you got sick the minute you got infected, you know, people could connect up their behaviors and their consequences a lot more readily, but that's not how it works, right? Nope, um, definitely not. And, um, you know, if you could tell as soon as you infected somebody else, you'd feel terrible but lots of people are walking around in the world infecting other people, not realizing it. And therefore they're not changing their behaviors necessarily. Yeah. Agreed. And I was actually going to go to the feedback one next. I I mean, we don't even practice that. That's amazing that we're connecting all these. But so when it comes to the feedback theme, because feedback will in, in a lot of people create behavior change. The thing that I always preach about feedback is that when you receive feedback, it's either you can take it and do something with it, or you can leave it on the floor right where it was dropped on you. Mm-hmm. Like it's up to you to make that decision. And that's where the behavior change comes in. So when we're looking at creating behavior change using AR and VR, where the the computer in essence is giving feedback based on how you answered a question or moved forward in a scenario. Mm-hmm. I think that there are a lot of folks out there that could really benefit from that, especially when you're training something or teaching something that's, um, you know, soft skills. I'm using my air quotes for those of you. Well, nobody can see me, but yeah. So I'm using my air quotes. You know, the soft skills idea that the the behavior, workplace behavior, crucial conversations, using your emotional intelligence, there can definitely be built in a great way to get feedback that feels safe to the person that's actually experiencing this training. Mm-hmm. Because I know, at least from my experience, you know, you bring people into a classroom, you give them a scenario, you're like, here, you act like this person, you act like that person. Nobody is being 100% authentic. Right. Not a, not even kind of. <laughs> well, in feedback, the, the thing about feedback when the way we're talking about it here is it actually is a broader definition than just like your manager giving you feedback or something like that, like somebody telling you, you know, coaching feedback, it totally includes that, but it's actually bigger than that. So for example, if I'm a healthcare provider and I, I'm not washing my hands as often as I should, Mm -hmm. right. There could Mm -hmm. be feedback from like the safety officer who tells you you're not washing your hands as as much as you should. But you know, some of the other places where feedback's an issue is if nobody's watching you first of all, but second of all, um, if my hands already look and feel clean to me and I wash them, I don't get, I don't get like visual confirmation that I've done something Mm -hmm. like intellectually, you know, this, right. You're, you know, it is an intellectual thing, but it's not, um, it's not a physical thing. So I don't think we have a hand-washing problem in healthcare all that often when people actually have visible soil on their hands, like something, blood or whatever. Right. Um, I think the hand washing issue is when you've washed them six times in the last hour and all you've touched is your stethoscope and, you know, the clipboard and you know, you're supposed to wash them again, but it just doesn't feel like you've gotten come into contact with anything and it's the end of the day and you're tired, Mm -hmm. you know? And Mm -hmm. so then there's the issue of if you don't wash your hands, what actually happens? 
like I said, somebody may say something to you, but most of the time, probably not, right? Um, Most of the time, you're not being watched at that level, which turns into kind of its own issue of, you know, surveillance and compliance and all those kinds of things. Um, We want people doing this because it's part of their habits or the right thing to do rather than because, you know, we, we need compliance. It's part of the world, but it shouldn't be the only thing motivating people because then they'll find ways around it. Absolutely. Um, uh, So if I don't wash my hands, what's the bad thing that can happen? Well, somebody can get sick, a patient or whoever, right? But will you ever know that not washing your hands at 358 on Thursday was the thing that caused this patient over here to get sick? Probably not because it's probably not going to happen immediately. Right. Right. And 37 other people have been in and out of this hospital room since, since 357 on Thursday and things like that. And so, um, and then will I know even that a hand washing problem caused this patient get sick? Well, maybe, you know, depending on what kind of illness it is, but will I know, like, you know, is this even out of the norm? Uh, Well, I only know that at, at kind of the system level, if our ward infections or our hospital numbers are worse than kind of comparable hospitals or things like that. Cause we accept a certain amount of this stuff's probably going to happen. Um, and so that is feedback for individual behaviors. that's only happening at kind of a group or a system level and can't be tied back to the original behavior. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. So I will never know that me not washing my hands at this point created these problems. Um, all I know is that a trend of not washing hands creates a trend of problems And that's a tough one because that is that very abstract, untangible consequence. Now, if I'm in a VR environment and I have, as soon as I infect somebody, you know, a blue patch appears on them. And then I see where this blue patch spreads to throughout the ward. And I know that I caused it because it's a simulation. Then all of a sudden that feels much more real to Mm me. Mm -hmm. Um, It's not an intellectual thing. It's a, you know, it's a physical, visual thing. And so when, when I talk about lack of feedback um, or issues with feedback, it's, it's kind of at all levels, not just, you know, did somebody coach you or explain right. anything, but like, is there some consequence that is identifiable that maps back to that behavior? And in the real world, there's all sorts of consequences that are not visible. If I eat a cookie this afternoon, it's not going to have an immediate impact on anything. But if I, you know, lots of cookies every afternoon, Eventually, that's going to add up to a consequence I don't like. Mm-hmm. Um, although they'll, be, they'll probably be good. Yeah, you but, should, um, maybe you should switch to brownies. That might be a better consequence. Well, there you go. <laughs> could be, <laughs> maybe. Well, that's thank you. I appreciate you explaining that because I, uh, I, you're right. It's definitely a bigger thing. And, and oh gosh, like in real life, how could we get that feedback? We can't. And here in virtual reality, now are we guessing at it a little bit? But mm-hmm. the science backs up our, our educated guess as to what potentially could happen uh, in the in the example that you're talking about with hand washing. So um, I love that. And, you know, again, feedback that kind of comes with experiencing consequences. Right. So I love how they all connect to each other. Mm-hmm. But nevertheless, they still sort of stand on their own. Very cool. Anything else that you want us to know about AR and VR as an effective learning solution for behavior change? Um, Probably the behavior change model that isn't specific to AR and VR, but that I do recommend to people Mm -hmm. uh, check out is it's called the COMB model. And it's, so it's C-O-M-B and it's um, 
Susan Mickey and a group of uh, her people at University College London Center for Behavior Change. And I'm a big fan. It's also sometimes called the Behavior Change Wheel. Um, but I'm a big fan of that as a really good comprehensive model for um, breaking down a behavior change problem and looking at solutions to it. And I believe we've got a short discussion of it in the research report. So if people go out to the Learning Guild site, they can register for free and get a copy of the research report, which is also there, uh, which is also available. So I highly recommend that. Awesome. Check that out. And that kind of leads into our next question, which is, what can we do right now as learning professionals to better understand the science of behavior change and implement it in our program designs? So step number one, go out to the Learning Guild and download that uh, free information about the behavior change wheel. <laughs> what else could we do? Uh, I also did a a video cast research report for the e-learning guild that was specifically on the combi behavior change model. So if people want to know more about that, that's another good source for it. Yeah. With Jane Bozarth. Mm -hmm. I saw that one, but I was very excited about the AR and VR. So I right, right. turned a blind eye to that one. And I was like, well, I'm look <laughs> at this shiny object right now. Yeah. Okay, cool. Well, as we are wrapping up, I want to ask you a couple of quick questions that I ask all of my guests. Sure. And so the first one is this, how do you align your passion with your work? Uh, you know, I always say that I'm an instructional designer because I'm happy as long as I get to learn something new and it doesn't actually matter that much what it is. So sure, I'll learn about, um, you know, compliance procedures or reporting, um, you know, reporting for uh, insurance cases or, you know, how brakes work, brake systems work and minivans or things like that. Um, so I think that's it. I think, uh, you know, you find the thing that, that you enjoy doing. Um, Tim Ferriss has a great line about figure out the thing that's easy for you and hard for other people. And that that should point you towards, uh, the kind of work that you should be doing. I like that. That's awesome. In fact, what it, maybe that is your message because the next question is, what is the message that you want to get out to our listeners? What do you want them to remember? You know, I think that we talked a lot about feedback in this, uh, in this podcast. And so I think that's actually one of my biggest messages out to folks in the L&D community is looking for more feedback on your own efforts. Mm. Um, I think we're kind of starved for it. And I think LMSs are a bit of a culprit with that. But the question is, is if you're designing things or building things, how can you get more feedback on what you're doing? And it could be going out and talking to users, or it could be user testing where you watch them use the things you build. It, you know, there's lots of things that could be um, critiques from people in the field, but uh, but since we've already established that feedback is super important, uh, I think my message out to people is to try to figure out how do you get more feedback into your own practice. That's a great message. How can people connect with you if they want to after the show? Okay. Um, my website is Usable Learning, uh, so I have stuff out there, but I also have a Facebook group for the book. So the book is designed for how people learn. Um, and there is a Facebook group if you'd uh, like to come out. There's a lot of really fabulous, smart instructional design people in there. And I've been really happy with kind of the level of community that's developing in that space. Um, and then I also have a site called designbetterlearning.com. And I've got just one course up there, but I'll be adding some courses, some instructional design course material to that. In, hopefully in the future, it's been, a, it's been an odd year. So the the plans for that have changed a little bit, but um, but it's still the intention. Strange season, yes. Exactly. Yeah. There's been a strange season, so the, the plans are still to add some stuff to it. And I'm actually working, 
uh, with Dustin, we're working on proposals for a behavior change book. So hopefully that will be forthcoming Ooh, as well. I'm very excited about that one. Um, and I love your book, Designing for How People Learn. Just FYI, I've been trying to keep my fangirl calm while we're <laughs> chatting, but it is, it's phenomenal in the fact that you, I did not realize you wrote that 10 years ago and you were way ahead of your time because people are, people are just now ready to like gobble it up. I see it all the time on LinkedIn. Um, I'm reading this this weekend. I'm so excited to read this. And I I just figured you had published it in the last couple of years. I didn't even look to see that it had been 10 years. You know, we tried really hard when we put it together to, um, I was working with the editor and so forth to put it together to make it as evergreen as possible. Yeah. So that it was about kind of really solid design principles that will continue to be applicable no matter what happens with technology or, you know, things like that. So. Well, I would say well done on that front. Um, it's awesome. I, I recommend it uh, over and over again to people who are trying to learn about instructional design, especially those subject matter experts that suddenly became trainers. And now, you know, a year and a half later, they're tasked with creating training. I'm like, let me tell you about this book that Julie wrote. Yeah, well, they're they're absolutely the target audience for it. Yeah, so thank yeah. you so much. Good. That works out. Good. Okay. Well, thank you so much, Julie Dirksen, for sharing your thoughts today. And thank you so much, listeners. Watch for another episode of the If You Ask Betty podcast soon. Peace out.